Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today. She served and volleyed and chipped and charged her way to 17 in the world in singles and was the number one doubles player in the world for the majority of the 90s, winning 17 majors and two Olympic gold medals. Hall of Famer Gigi Fernandez is going to give us her impressions of the current WTA coaching carousel. Tell us how one of the most successful partnerships in doubles history came to be and explain why Monica Puig, while fantastic, is not the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal. We chatted with Gigi while we were in Florida during the Miami Open. We are uh, live via Skype with former world number 17, the number one doubles player for a very long time, uh, arguably the best doubles player there is, Gigi Fernandez. Gigi, where are we talking? Where are you right now? Oh, I'm sitting in the in my uh, back patio. What city are you in? I live in Tampa in a little canal. So I have a nice little water view right now. So I'm, I love the water, so I'm happy. <laughs> You're in Tampa. Is, is that where you live now? Yep. I moved here last summer, uh, or two summers ago, rather. I got tired. I was living in Connecticut, got a little bit tired of the weather, and wanted to be able to be in a climate where people would have the opportunity to come work with me. Um, I couldn't get a lot of people come to Connecticut. <laughs> so now I'm in Tampa, yeah. Well, the weather's nice all year round. Outstanding. Now, are you? Do you have any plans to come to Miami for the for the tournament or what? No, you know, I just spent a week at the BNP Paribas um, with my family there and doing camps um, for seven straight days. So kids are back in school. So I'm back being a mom. So here's the deal. It's our 27th episode, and we've learned a lot along the way, but one thing we know for sure is it takes more than 27 episodes to get to a listenership size where we can afford to create a high-level podcast on advertisement revenue alone. Making Under Review requires a lot of time and resources, and last August, we put aside our day jobs to hit the road, pound the pavement, and grow this thing. While we're doing well, we're still not quite sustainable. So we're looking to you, our listeners, to join us and invest in the future of Under Review. We started a Patreon page, which is basically an internet portal that allows for you, our listeners and supporters, to become our patrons. And on our side, Patreon allows us to offer you some pretty cool perks in return. By contributing the minimum amount, you'll get a big thank you on the show and have access to never-before-heard interviews like the one we had with the magician Fabrice Santoro in London right before he was pulled away by Pierre Oogs or Bear to help him and Nicholas Mehut win the doubles final. And if you contribute to higher tiers, you can get perks like autographed racket magazines, Solinko strings, and tennis lessons with some of the world-class players who've been on our show. I think it's some pretty cool stuff, so please check it out at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash underreviewtennis. Please help spread the word. Thank you very much. And let's get back to the show. We do a five-set format in keeping with the tennis tradition. Um, You know, our first set is our off-the-court report. Okay. And it sounds to me like you've set up a new camp. Is that is that right? Yeah, so I have an online business, um, and my online portal is called doubles.tv, and it's where I share all my knowledge of doubles. 
Um, I have a, the GG method, which is doubles instructional course, which teaches people how to play doubles. And um, for the last five years, I've been working with recreational players. I started doing that when I was the director of tennis at Chelsea Pierce from like 3-0 to 5-0. So that's sort of who I help right now. I help adults be better at doubles. And I do it either online or I do camps and clinics. Uh, I travel to clubs and do clinics like Matt Sealander was doing with his uh, Wow Wheel on Their Own Wheels. I started doing the same thing about five years ago. Um, and then just recently in the last year, I started, since I moved to Tampa, then I have three-day camps where people come to Tampa for three days and work with me and kind of learn to play doubles in winning way. That's a that's a cool thing, three-day doubles camp. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So we do it at the Innisbrook Resort and Spa, which is 20 miles from the Tampa airport. There used to be a tennis tournament there back in the 80s, but it's a pretty, really nice resort. And I'm Sorry, Innisbrook, that's a famous place. That's a yeah. famous tennis resort. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah that's yeah. cool. And, then, and they also famous golf. There's a men's pro golf tournament actually going on this week. Um, so we start on the first day. We, um, we play 10 hours over three days. That's all you need, by the way. Ten hours. That's good. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried it. I tried it with twelve, and the, the people by the third day, they're just tapped. Everybody's getting injured, and and they get blisters. Yeah, and once you get blisters, you can't play anyway. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's really the right amount after a lot of testing. We tried ten, we tried twelve, eleven. But sometimes, I mean, if you if I get a group that's really fit, we'll extend to eleven. But I promise ten, and then we go more if people want it or if everybody's you know fit and that's cool. Not not tapped out, but. What's different from this camp that most camps you'll ever go to is that we spend at least two hours in the classroom going over all the steps of the DG method and truly understanding it in a classroom setting, like from the theoretical perspective. Like, why am I telling you to cover this way? And uh, I'm supposed to this way. Why am I telling you that you should cover this shot or hit this shot? That's just it, right? The position that like people play such bad doubles that yeah. if you actually play well yeah, exactly. and you know where to move and you know where to stand... You can play good tennis. It's a lot more fun. Right. So actually, you get better at tennis without having to go and work on your forehand and your backhand and your volleys for hours and hours. Gigi, I tell you what, nothing nothing makes me crazier than when I have a partner that doesn't know where to go on the court. Yeah. Or hits the wrong shot. It makes you look like a fool, right? <laughs> or gets you killed. Yeah. So we do that. Um, so we have lunch. And at lunch, I talk about serve and return strategies. And I talk about the mental game, which, of course... Um, it's probably what people struggle with the most is really understanding the mental game. And um, as you know, uh, or maybe you don't, but in an average match, uh, an ATP tour average match takes two hours and 45 minutes. And of that time, the, the players are only actually playing a point 24 of those minutes. That means that 84% of the time that you're playing tennis, you're not actually playing a point. So that is a lot of time to like figure out what, what to do with your mind. And that's where most people falter. So you don't, they don't have the right thought they don't know what to think they don't have the right sequence of events that happens between points gg fernandez break you break it down for the club player exactly get them better three days and they're getting better yeah and it's uh you know it's 1800 dollars all inclusive so it's it's fairly fair i think uh compared to you know other counselor you might pay a little bit less but you're not getting this kind of instruction and and it, like i said all inclusive hotel meals everything's included so that's like three that's like three dinners at the miami open yeah there you go and now, what about those trips to the slams that we see? Um, yeah, I do that. Tell us about that. I, that, to me, looks way sexier than three-day camp, but I want to cover it all. You know what I mean? Yeah, so that's fun. I mean, I, I find that you know, tennis fans love to watch tennis, and they, a lot of them have this bucket list item in their life that they want to visit all the Grand Slams. So I bring them there. I have the packages, and I put, you know, we stay at the player hotels, and 
we get player transportation when possible and we hang out at the courts and uh, they get to, you know, watch dance with them and like escort them around and show them all the little hidden areas that you know, a regular fan might not know what's going on behind the scenes. Gigi Fernandez, your, your, your final eight club at all those slams, right? So yeah, I got that. I do. <laughs> just added the labor club because I just find that event to be fascinating. Like, um, I went last year and I watched it on TV two years ago and I went last year and I thought, wow, what a, this is the greatest thing for tennis, I think. Wow, Gigi, you're hot on the Labor Cup. They got to get one going for the ladies next, huh? Yeah, they should. I mean, it's so popular and uh, so well done. And um, yeah, it's fun to watch the players like come together as a team and really play for each other. And I think it's really good for, not just for the game, but it's also good for the players to be in that kind of team environment. Also, seeing the top players play dubs is fun. Yes, that that was the funnest part for me. Watching, uh, you know, Roger and Rafael Novak play play doubles, and um, and actually get schooled by Jack Sock. <laughs> like that was the most interesting part. Like Jack Sock, who really actually knows how to play the doubles, like schooled all three of those players. Jack Sock uh, at the Labor Cup, so he won all his doubles matches. Uh, I guess much better player because he really understood doubles. And now when you get out on the court, do you just whip up on everybody still? Are you still just... No. Yes, you do. You do, right? No, now, no, do you ever, like, show up at, like, a USTA open event and no one knows who you are and you just go out and kill everybody? Or No, or not anymore. No. You know, I'm 55 years old and, you know, the body slows down and uh, the eyes slow down and kids you see, they hit the ball so hard, you know, and it's like, no, it's, it's uh, you know, the... I play USDA League five zero, and I don't I have never lost, but that doesn't mean that I couldn't lose. I've had there's certainly been matches where I've been close to losing. Gigi um, Fernandez so. playing five zero League. I mean, that sounds <laughs> like it, not baby. fair. Come that on. sounds like not fair. I had a feeling you were doing something like that. Yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy competing. It's good to meet people, and you know, I when I started uh, coaching recreational players again back when I became director of tennis, I discovered the social side of tennis, and there's. Obviously, everybody listening to this knows that, and so do you, that tennis is very social. It's a social sport. I had no idea. It was, tennis had, had nothing to do with being social when I was playing. So I discovered it, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is great. I made all these friends, and we have fun together, and we go out and have lunch after our matches, and you know, we go on trips together. I mean, Gigi, you won 17 grand slams, and you, you're having fun at lunch after <laughs> after league. That's pretty funny. Exactly. You're into it. The social part. It's the social part of tennis. Yeah, it's fun. This is our second set. Yeah. This is our on-the-court report. Okay. I have a feeling you keep your eye on pro tennis in a significant way. Is that true? Um, I wouldn't say significant, but I do follow. I follow the Grand Slam, and I follow the main event. Like I was obviously at Indian Wells. Um, I keep up with the the yeah. you know, like I start watching from the quarters on. Put it that way. I'm one of those. What were <laughs> your impressions of um, Bianca Andreescu's performance out there? Oh my god, I was very impressed with her. I thought. What a complete player. I haven't seen a complete player like that come around in a long time. I love that she is not afraid to come in and hit drop shots. And she ha she really truly has an all-court game. And it's very unpredictable. She's not like, I just find sometimes it's a little bit boring to watch you know, players just bash the ball from the baseline back and forth. There's no creativity. Um, you know, no, like back in um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, people 
could still serve volley and could still just play an all-court game, but I found it just became so one-dimensional. I was like, where did they hit the ball harder? Who's going to win? And then I will come to Bianca Andrescu when she's coming in and she's hitting drop shots and she's really truly playing the whole court. So it was it was really a lot of fun to watch and it's interesting to see how she um, how she reacts to this win. You know, sometimes the first win's uh, easy, but then following it up, it can be a little bit challenging at times. So we'll see how she reacts to that. I harp on this a lot, but she was match tough, right? She she had come in, she'd played thirty matches. Yeah. You know, and to me, it showed. Yeah, well, to that's me, a that lot. really showed. <laughs> Scotty and I, we saw her on court five thousand at Newport Beach Challenger, the Oracle Challenger. Oh wow! Just a month ago. Wow. Yeah, yeah, no, no, she's match tough. Um, what's your opinion of these truncated schedules? A lot of the players are playing, where they're just kind of showing up. Um, you know, they're not playing a lot of events. Well, uh, if you look at the longevity of a tennis player now versus 15, 20, 25 years ago, they've really extended their careers, and they do that by playing less. You know, back in my day, you have to play 17, 18 tournaments a year. And a lot of those tournaments were two-week tournaments. So we're, you're competing 36 to 40 weeks. That's crazy. I mean, I was on the road 40, 42 weeks a year. I retired at 33, and I was done. It's too much. I mean, my body was done. My mind was gone. Everything was done. So, you know, not players are playing. I mean, look, Federer till 38. The, the Bryan brothers are well into their 40s. Venus Williams makes the quarters of every tournament she plays. Yeah. She's about to turn 40. I know. So it's really because they have limited their schedules and, um, you know, and also they have, you know, traveling physios and they take better care of their bodies. There's more money to you know, have your personal physio and your personal masseuse and all that to really take care of their bodies way better than my generation did. But they also don't play as much. And that's why they're having longer careers. Um, do you keep your eye on the doubles? Yeah, a little bit. I watch, like I said, I watch like the semis of the finals. I definitely watch the Grand Slams. I pay attention. Who, who, on the, on the women's side, who are the best doubles players in the world now? No, it's like a revolving door of who's going to be number one. But, um. Because Martina Hingis seemed like she was the best doubles player in the world for 20 years. Yeah, for a long time. (laughs) Um. Who just won? I mean, there was a surprise winner at Indian Wells, but whoever they beat in the finals, that got terrible names. Um, Siniakova and her partner. Siniakova, uh, the Czech. Siniakova, she's been pretty good. Yeah, and who she's playing with, I forget her name. But they've, doubles, been, they've had a pretty good run. But the doubles now, uh-huh. it's like a different sport than it used to be anyway. No one really yeah. serves in volleys. It's bizarre. No. I mean, they're truly playing singles on the doubles court, most of them. The ones that play a little bit of doubles that come in and have decent volleys, those are the ones that are winning. Mladenovic is a pretty good doubles player. Kiki Mladenovic is a good doubles player. Yeah, and then Kiki Burton also can play doubles. And then, you know, that was it. So after Lisa Raymond retired, yeah. uh, she was the last true doubles player that was out there, like, serving and volleying and still, you know, returning and coming in. and kind of. But then, you know, the problem for the volleyers is that not only do the baseliners hit the bejesus out of the ball, they just hit the ball so hard. But it's also hard with spin. They might rather hit people hit the ball hard. I mean, and maybe arguably just as hard, but it was flat. So when they were hitting the ball hard, it was coming, you know, waist level or maybe thigh level, right? When you were hitting a volley. But now, it dips. When you're at the net, every volley you're hitting is from from your feet, from your shoes. So you're constantly hitting up on your volleys. And when you're hitting, constantly hitting up on your volleys, you're going to get clobbered. So it doesn't matter. I mean, you can watch like the players could be 
six feet from the net and and the baseliners can still get the ball to your feet. Yeah, hard. And, and racket and string technology is what has, right, exactly. has really exactly. kind of punished the, the volleyer. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to hear your opinions about the coaching carousel, particularly on the women's side <laughs> that has shooken out since the back end of last year. That's um, crazy. Like, I think that Naomi Osaka... I don't even know what to make of that. I mean, how do you go from like 70 to number one in the world, win two grand slams and fire your coach? How, yeah. You how know what you- though? I, my, my sense is in, in talking to a few people that seem like they know the story, something not that good must've happened. Like what? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, listen, well, listen mean, that's, we're, we're, our show's I, an insider show. We're trying to get to the bottom of it, but I heard through the grapevine that he was making too much money. I mean, if he's making too much money, then that's ridiculous because she just made like $10 million in the last nine months. So who cares how much he's making? $10 million in prize money. Not even, she made way more right. than that, boy. Exactly. Woo, she made a lot of money. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, other than he's raping someone, like, I mean, you just keep the coach. Okay, what he's doing? Seriously? Like, let's be real. Like, I mean, unless he's doing something that is going to put him in jail. Like, work it out. I mean, these players, like, not only with the coaches, but also with the doubles partners. Like, as soon as there's a little adversity, they're like, oh, thanks. You know, I mean, that's this generation, too. They're, they're, they don't they don't really commit to things. It's like, on to the next. So, I don't know. I don't know. Osaka, I mean, she didn't, obviously, didn't defend her points at, um, and is she still number one in the world after not defending her points in any world? I think she is, but only because of other things that happen. However, yeah. um, she sure didn't defend those points. I know. And um, I actually watched her have a tragic practice uh, a few days ago. Oh, really? I mean, she actually just sat down right on the court. Started crying? <laughs> and, you know, no, 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 just, uh, you know. It just didn't. It didn't oh. seem like a very. Um, it didn't seem like you were watching the number one player in the world. That's for sure. But maybe we weren't supposed to see that. You know, listen. Players have bad practices, okay? And she's number one in the world, and she's had some. You know, it's not easy to go win seven matches, and she's done it twice now, back to back. Yeah, but you know what? Getting to number one is way easier than staying in number one. You know what I mean? Like when you look at Kerber, was number one a couple of years ago, two years ago, and then she went like. A wall and got down to like outside the top twenty. Kerber so, and she dumped her coach too, by the way, Wim Fassett. Yeah. Also, you know, Simona Hollop, Darren Cahill stopped traveling with her. Yeah. Garbina Muguruza has like a tragic relationship with her coach, it seems like. I mean, every time we see her, she's like losing somewhere and and staring at her coach like she's gonna like kill him. I tell you the worst mistake Garbina did was she won Wimbledon with Kachita Martinez as her coach. And then didn't keep her. Like, what are you thinking? Obviously, she helped you win Wimbledon. <laughs> and then she went back to her old coach, Sam. It's like, all right, well, keep Sam if you want, but just keep Conchita around. But no, she didn't. So What, she didn't want, she didn't want to pay Conchita? Maybe that's it. But you know, they make so much money. It's like, Jesus Christ. She made five, $4 million just in price money for winning Wimbledon. So... Like you said, plus all the endorsements. So, I don't know. 
how much money do you need, really? Is it money every time or the, the coach is driving the player crazy? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's just the mentality. Maybe it's just feeling like they did it. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, he's my coach, but I'm the one that was on the court, which is true, but it takes a it takes a village. You know, it's not – I didn't get to number one in, in the world in doubles by myself. That's for damn sure. Like, I had a lot of help. And if at any point I would have gotten rid of the people who were around me who were supporting my – being number one in the world, I probably would not have been number one in the world. So I just don't think it's very smart. All these players need to listen up to Gigi Fernandez and maybe stop dumping <laughs> your coaches so fast and furious. Yeah, I mean, give it a chance. Moving into our third set, this is where we talk about your career. Okay. Now listen, I know you're from San Juan, Puerto Rico. Um, I also know that Puerto Rico has a very interesting tennis culture. I, I know about Charlie Passarell and Welby Van Horn. And just I was when I was researching the watching, getting ready for the interview with you and watching you, your strokes are, are classic and your volleys are incredible. Did you did you grow up with those guys teaching you tennis? No, actually, believe it or not, Welby no. Van Horn refused to teach me. He told my mom that. I had no talent and that I would never make it. For all our listeners, uh, Welby Van Horn is a famous uh, tennis coach that I believe taught at like the El Conquistador or some spot in, in Puerto Rico, right? Yeah, and he taught a lot of, uh, Charlie Passerell was one of them. He taught a lot of players with, who had really great junior careers, you know, top 10 juniors in the, in the U.S. This is, like, well, this is a famous coach. Yeah, it's pretty famous. But he thought that I would never make it. And I don't know whether it was because of my temperament or because I was very talented since I was little. I, had a, I was very gifted. I mean, I have hand-eye coordination that was unusual at my age. So I don't know what, why he told my mom that. The only thing I can think of is that it was my temperament because I, I had a really bad temper. I don't know if you know that, but I used to break rackets and I, I just was, um, you know, I was a perfectionist and I couldn't stand not winning or not achieving perfection, which in the end made me a great player. But when I was a junior, that must have been really hard to deal with. So how did you get good? Where did you learn? Yeah. So I had, you know, I played in Puerto Rico and because I had no competition, I was always number one in like my category and the two above. So at 12, I was one and 12, 14 and 16. Um, but because the Puerto Rico Tennis Association was part of the United States Tennis Association, I could go to the summer and play nationals. I could play the whole national circuit. And I got recruited by coach uh, at Clemson University. So I went to Clemson. Hold on a second. So you played junior tennis, you'd come to the States, and you would, like, what did you do? You'd play tournaments in Florida. Where else would you play? Yeah, I just played nationals. I played the Claycourt Nationals, the Hartford Nationals, um, the Southern Open. And did you have results? Um, I did good in doubles. I made the finals of a couple nationals. I think I may have, may have even won, like the 14 other nationals, Claycourt Nationals, I think. But not in singles. I, I mean, I was not top 50 in the country. I was not inside the top 50. Okay. But this guy found me, saw me, saw something. The coach of Clemson. The coach of Clemson, yeah. Or this girl, rather, this woman. Actually, the, the lady who recruited me was Mary King. And she recruited me, but then when I got there, she had left. And when I went to college, it was the first time in my life that I played tennis every day. And it was the first time in my life that I actually drilled. Where I did, like, let's do forehand cross courts and, four, and backhand down the line. Like, for... 20 minutes. We've never done that in my life. It's the first time you got real, real serious. Yeah. So as a freshman, I was playing number two on my team, but I didn't, uh, you know, I lost only two matches. And what year is this? Like 1982. 1982 Clemson Tiger. What was that experience like? You Did you, did you love it out there? Um, It was 
kind of challenging because I was from Puerto Rico and I had a hard time understanding uh, the Southern accent. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, and I was homesick. And But the, the story is that I got accepted into the NCAAs. Uh, that was the last person accepted into the NCAAs. And I know that I was the last person because the selection committee made a mistake and picked 65 players instead of 64. And I had to play pre-qualifying to get into the main draw. So I got in the main draw and not only that, but I got all the way to the finals and, and I ended up losing seven, six and a third to Beth Herr, who had a pro ranking at the time. And you know, now go back to 82. Back then tennis wasn't really covered. And I mean, it was, not like what it is today. There's no internet, no social media. Right. So I was like, oh, this girl, you know, she seemed pretty good. But about five weeks later, I'm watching Wimbledon and she's playing Billie Jean King in the round of 16 on center court in this long match. It was like eight, six and a third. And I'm going, wait, that's the girl that I almost beat. I had match points in that girl and she's almost beating Billie Jean King. So maybe I can be a pro. <laughs> that was like my clue. You know, it's so different back then. And so, are you a believer in college tennis? I mean, it sounds like it sounds like that was your, uh, um, yeah, that was your uh, Willy Wonka card into the into the game. Yeah, definitely, I'm a believer. I think uh, I think way too many players go straight to on tour and play challengers and never make it and uh, miss the opportunity, miss the education. I mean, education is critical. Like, I mean, if you if you even if you have a great tennis career and you retire at 35 what are you going to do with the rest of your life? I mean, you have to be educated. You have to. Well, we know you went back to school. Yeah. Now. So you finished your freshman year. How did you turn pro? Like what happened? How, how did you, how did you get out there and just start, you know, like climbing the ladder? So okay. So, so that summer, uh, I, I started playing the 10,000s with challengers and I did well in those. I would win some, make the finals. I won some doubles. So I had my rational economy. Um, I was 186 in the world when the summer ended. I went to the Pan Am Games. I walked on to the US Open. Um, and then I asked my coach, I said, okay, I'll come back to Clemson, but you have to guarantee that I'll play number one. Because the previous year, I had played number two and I only lost two matches all year. And he couldn't guarantee it. He said I was going to have to play a challenge match because the girl who was playing one was a returning senior. And I was like, oh, that's not good. So I said, let me take the fall off. So I took the fall off. And after the fall ended, I was 86 in the world. Damn. So then it was like, all right, it's time. So I should turn pro. Um, the Australian Open used to be in November back in the day. And it was on craft. So when I went to Australia for that trip, I, I turned pro. I turned pro right before it. So that was my first professional tournament. I did well. I made the I beat Steffi Graf. made the quarters of the um, tournament in Sydney or a couple rounds of the Australian Open. You beat Steffi Graf. Yeah, she was 12. <laughs> <laughs> You beat a young Steffi Graf. Yeah. So then, so then I struggled for so what I perceived as struggling for four or five years, um, and I almost quit. I was really not happy. It was hard to travel and be on myself, and um, I wasn't winning as much as I thought I should be winning. And um, then I had a breakthrough moment at the 1988 U.S. Open where I met Jim Lair. And he was the first person that helped me deal with the mental part of the game. Uh, just for our listeners, um, we just talked about Dr. Jim Lair with Gordon Euling. This is one of the most well-known sports psychologists who has a very significant, as you're hearing right now from Gigi, uh, place in tennis. Yeah, I mean, he was groundbreaking. He was the first psychologist to really delve into tennis and help players figure out 
really what to do with that all that time makes points because like I said earlier, you know, 85% of the time or 84% of the time you're playing tennis, you're not playing points. So what are you doing with that time? And uh, so he helped me with that. So Gigi, you're a disciple of Dr. Lair. Yes. Okay. Um, so yeah, so he helped me win that first U.S. Open, and then from then on, that was '88, and then by '90, I was winning, you know, one or two Grand Slams a year. Um, and when Natasha and I became partners, then I was winning three Grand Slams a year. We, Natasha and I, I won, we won 14 Grand Slams. Natasha Zvereva. Yeah. her name is Natalia. Yeah, her, is it both Natalia and Natasha? Um, I was called her Natasha. Or was she always just Natasha? She was always Natasha. Natasha. Yeah, she was always Natasha. Um, Natasha Zvereva, and you, what did you guys like? You just like met in the locker room or on the practice court? Because when you got together, you ladies won 14 grand slams. I mean, that's no joke. Yeah, I know, in five years. That's crazy, right? How'd you meet her? So, I mean, we, we've been playing against each other. Played each other in the 91 US Open final. Doubles. Yeah, doubles. So, I was playing with Diana Novotna, and she was playing with Larissa Neon. And when the match ended, we lost 6-4 in the third. When that ended, Yana says, I need to talk to you. And I said, what are you, are you crazy? We just lost 6-4 in the third. She doubled up at a match point. I was devastated. Um, and she says, um, I don't want to play with you anymore. And I was like, wait a second. You double faulted. I should be dumping you. <laughs> and we had just won the French Open. Wait, Yana was very temperamental. God rest her soul, by the way. Um, she's, I know, it's terrible. She's so missed, sad. but... But it's sad. She just she passed away a year or two ago, I believe. Um, but Yana was very temperamental. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I wouldn't call her very temperamental. And she and she dumped you right after the loss, like literally dumped you. Yeah, literally just said I don't want to play with you anymore. And I was like, What do you mean? We just I, we had just won the French. I made the final of the Wimbledon. Uh, well, unbeknownst to Natasha and I, Larissa and Yana had agreed to play the rest of the year together. So they both dumped us. Wow, thick as thieves. Yeah, so then it kind of left Natasha and I like, whoa. So then about nine months later, we got together. And of course, we played them in that next year. We played, played them at that Wimbledon. At the next Wimbledon, we played them in the finals. And we beat them. Yay, we never we played them six times in Grand Slam finals and never lost to them. Wow, that's like revenge, best served cold right there. And for all our listeners, Natasha Zvereva is in the Tennis Hall of Fame, as well as, well as Gigi. Yeah. Natasha Zvereva, she was kind of kooky, right? Like, she, she had a um, reputation or is known for kind of going a little sideways. Is that, isn't that that right? Well, um, I mean, Natasha's her own person. You know, she wasn't going to conform to what anybody ever told her to do. She She was the first Russian... To um, demand her own prize money, right? Yeah, so she was really groundbreaking. And but she, she was like I said, she was her own person, and she did whatever she wanted, and wasn't going to be told what to do. And she was a great player. Yeah, she had great hands. Top ten singles player too. But but I always thought that she had the potential to like really check out, and 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 yeah, she had a yeah, potential to really check out during matches, particularly singles matches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wanted to ask you, like, like what kind of stuff would you say to her on the court? Because you guys play great together. I mean, you know, you know, that's 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 arguably the best doubles team in history, right there. Well, no, I think Martina and Pam get that. <laughs> Shout out to Martina and Pam. Uh, yeah, no, they they won a couple more. I mean, I think what was unique about Natasha and I, like Martina and Pam were number Martina were number one and number four in singles. So really, two great players getting together. Natasha and I. 
you know, she was somewhere in the top 15 and I was somewhere in the top 30. So we're definitely not the best players in the world, but we really understood doubles and we really had the best partnership and really knew doubles. And that's why we won so much, but it was not because we were the best players in the world by any stretch. But your volleys are incredible. Yeah, we had this uncanny ability to win matches that we should not have won. Like we would get down a set in two breaks or, you know, match point down. So many times we were down match points and uh, we just find a way to win. So it was a very intense five years, you know, 14 grandsons in five years. That's how many grandsons Venus and Serena have won. That's no joke. I mean, that's an incredible accomplishment. But you listen, you got to 17 in the world in singles, got inside the top 20, you quarterfinal Grand Slam. That's no joke. How did your doubles impact your singles and vice versa? I think that the doubles in some ways may have hurt my singles career, though I would not have it any other way. Um, because I was always playing doubles on the weekend. Like, I was always, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, were dedicated to doubles. You know, Monday travel, Tuesday play singles. So I'm just not really getting myself properly prepared to play singles. But I was constantly trying to get better at singles, which, you know, in turn made me a better doubles player. But I think if I had had a different upbringing in Puerto Rico, like where I really had the the base of the ground strokes, I might have had a better singles career, but I turned pro with a sliced forehand and a sliced backhand. I had no topspin. I didn't have a topspin forehand and a topspin backhand. So I learned that, I actually learned a topspin backhand on tour. No way. Yeah. So yeah, that's my story. That's interesting. But I mean, honestly, you're, I, I, I'm just watching you when we're getting ready for this. Your volleys are just unbelievable. Who taught you to volley? Um... It was a combination of people, but I think I perfected my volley in Aspen when I was working with Julie Anthony. And at the time, um, Martina Rotolova lived in Aspen too, so I had a good visual model. I, I used to... Um, you copy Martina's volleys. Yeah, and, and, and it was sort of the first video cameras had just come out <laughs> recently, so I would actually video my volleys. And, you know, you have to, now you put it on your phone and you like rewind them and fast forward it right there. But back then I would have to go video my volleys, then go back to my house and look at what I was doing and then try to figure out, okay, next time I'm going to do this and then go back to the court and video it again. So it's like this long, complicated thing, but, but it's very video based. Like I really perfected my volleys uh, using video technology. Incredible. Uh, let me ask you a question. What is your greatest moment in pro tennis um probably winning my first olympic gold medal that was my my greatest moment um where joe fernandez and i were playing conchita martinez and arancha sanchez Vicario in spain and we were playing in spain uh in barcelona so the stadium was packed twelve thousand people um and it was really exciting we we won in three sets and and the feeling of you know, winning a gold medal and standing in the podium was pretty special. I mean, would you win like six French Opens, five five Wimbledons? I mean, yeah. you're telling me a, a gold medal is even better than that. Yeah, I'm telling you that. It's, uh, you know, something comes out around every four years. You know, there's four Grand Slams a year. This is once every four years. And did you stay at the Olympic Village? Did you, like, go out to the break of dawn? Did you guys, like, go out uh, drinking sangria no, the whole night? No, no, you kidding me? You know, I never drank when I was playing, like, not until maybe the last couple of years, but never before a match. No, not before. I mean, after, after you won the gold. Oh, after, after we won the gold? Um, yeah, so I stayed in the Village for the first part of the event. But then once the tennis started, I, I moved out because 
the village um, had no air conditioning. <laughs> we were in Barcelona in August. The weather was probably in the mid nineties with a hundred percent humidity, no air conditioning. Um, we had one fan to share for the whole team and I was just getting dehydrated. I mean, I was not going to be able to perform in those conditions. So I moved out and found a hotel somewhere. Um, you made a move. I made a move so I could win my gold medal, which I did. Wow. That is outstanding. It was very controversial in Puerto Rico, very controversial in Puerto Rico because of course I'm Puerto Rican, but I won it for the United States. Yeah, what what impacted the decision not to play for Puerto Rico that year? And to- I couldn't have. I couldn't have. There was two reasons I couldn't have. Number one, there was not another Puerto Rican I could play doubles with. And number two, to play in the Olympics, you have to be a recognized country by the ITF. So the Puerto Rico Tennis Association was part of the United States Tennis Association for history. But in 1991... We applied, or Puerto Rico applied, to the ITF to become our own country with, you know, in the eyes of the uh, Olympic movement, right? So, in 91, the, we were going through the process of trying to turn Puerto Rico into its own country, but it had not been confirmed that it was going to happen or not. And the other prerequisite was that you had to play for your, for your country Fed Cup twice to be able to compete in the Olympics. So you do the math. Like if we're going through this process in 91, the Olympics are in 92, and we still don't know if Puerto Rico's going to be a country. Right, right. You had no shot. You had no shot. I know, but people don't want to remember that. All they want to remember is that I chose to live in the United States and that I betrayed Puerto Ricans, and then they say Monica Freak is the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal, and I want to like go crazy when I hear that because I am the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal, period. Like I won it for the United States, but I am... As Puerto Rican as they come, possibly even more Puerto Rican than Monica Puig, who at two years old left the island. So you know how do you, it's very very difficult for Puerto Ricans because we're both, right? You're both. You're both. Yeah. So now, how do you define being Puerto Rican? You know, who's more Puerto Rican? Somebody who was born and raised there and lived their whole life there, developed there, or somebody who was born and left and then then went back? Like I don't know. Like, no one's more Puerto Rican than the other. We're both Puerto Rican. And I won my gold medal for the United States, and she won her gold medal for Puerto Rico. And we all celebrated. I was so excited when she won. Now, um, what's your relationship with the tennis community and the... In Puerto Rico? Yes. Um, So when I retired, I became the Fed Cup coach. When I retired from playing myself back in the 90s, I was the... Fed Cup coach, and I did that for a couple of years. I was a Pan American Games coach, and so you have a robust relationship with the island. And- yeah, you know, I've yeah. always gone back. I've always been very, very. Uh, it's always obviously held a very special place. You know, when the hurricane happened, I did a lot of fundraising events for Puerto Rico and raised a couple hundred thousand dollars in the end for hurricane relief, which is still an issue. Um, so yeah, no, I have a great relationship. I just, you know, my dad passed away last April, so I haven't been back since. And, um, and I don't know, maybe I will at some point, but, you know, I've created a life here in Tampa in the United States. I've been living here longer than I lived there, but I'm still from Puerto Rico. I still feel, you know, my cultural, my cultural identity is Puerto Rican and you know, I love the food. I love the music. I love everything about it. So Gigi Fernandez, tried and true Boricua. Yes. <laughs> Let's move into our fourth set. We call this 
the 10 ball scramble. I'm going to say a name or a thing, and you're going to just say what comes into your mind. All right, sounds good. Nevratilova. Perfection. Sabatini. Uh, style. Arancha. Grit. Mary Jo. Class. Hingis. Uh, oh, my God. How do you define her? Um, Hingis. Unique. Favorite city? Uh, Sydney. No, scratch that. Scratch that. Favorite city, New York. Favorite court? Center court at Wimbledon. Favorite tournament? Uh, the French Open. Favorite player growing up? Martina. No, wait, wait, wait. Go back, go back. Favorite player growing up? Beyond Bork. And on the lady side? Martina. Favorite player now? Don't have one. Don't have one. Just kidding. I can't say because I don't want to be in part. I, like, I love Roger and Rafa equally. And people are like, most people are either Roger fans or Rafa fans. And I really love them both. Yeah, every, those fans need to relax. You can love, yeah. you can like them for, it's like you can like uh, a Coke or a Pepsi once in a while. Right, you don't have exactly. to be one or the other. It's crazy. You can like New York and you can like LA. Yeah, exactly. For different reasons. People yeah. need to chill. Yeah. Um, Puerto Rico. La Isla del Encanto. Jose Ferrer. Uh, oh, God. Um, uh, Jose Ferrer. Um, Oscar winner. Is he a relative of yours? Did I read that? Yeah. He's my great uncle. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, my mother's first uncle. But my mother's two uncle. Like his, yeah. Shout out to Jose Ferrer. Yeah. Which, by the way, makes me related to George Clooney and I'm dying to meet him and I have it. Oh, interesting. George Clooney, if you're listening, maybe you need to get into that uh, three-day clinic. Yeah, he, he can come for free. <laughs> nah, you gotta make him pay double. George Clooney's got all the money. Uh, yeah. This is our fifth and final set. First of all, thank you for giving us so much time today. We call this the queen of the court. If you were the queen of tennis and you could make a change in the sport with one swing of the scepter, what would it be? I would raise the nets. Explain that, please. So if you raise the nets, the game will become less about the serve the power, and we will go back to being more of an awkward game. How many inches range the net? How many inches? Yeah, many... I mean, I would I would start with six inches. Just six inches, and let's see if we can make the service less important and start making players, um, awkward players, again. I think it's more interesting for the fans and more interesting for the game yeah, overall. This is, uh, this is a groundbreaking change that we have not heard. You are the first in in about 35 interviews to uh, break this down. Really? Yeah. Raise the net from Gigi Fernandez, everybody. Think about that next time you get on the court. <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, spending the time with us. Where can we find you uh, online? Yeah. So um, if you go to ggfernandeztennis.com, that's a good starting point that has all the information you need about my camps and clinics. And I have a free mailing list that I send a tip every once a month. Um, I send a lot of free stuff, free lessons online. Once you're on my mailing list, you'll get random emails with free stuff. And then once in a while, I try to sell some products that I create. And um, I'm just coming out with a doubles playbook for the summer. 
And, you know, one thing that players use that I think most people who are watching don't understand this, but we're constantly running plays. When I'm serving, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to serve it here. My partner's going to go or not. If they go, I'm going to go there, and then I'm going to hit the next ball there, and then I'm going to put the next ball away. That's sort of like the sequence of thoughts, right? You're speaking my language, man. People need yeah. to be playing better doubles yeah. because it becomes so much more fun. Right. God. Yeah, so that's what I'm, I'm coming up with a book of plays. So when you're serving to the do side against a lefty, what do you do? These are you have 10 options. I give you 10 plays, and pick, pick one, and I'll tell you which one to use based on your opponent's strength and weaknesses. Nice. Um, listen, thank you very much, and you. Um, you are released. We All had right. a great time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you want to help support Under Review, the Tennis Insiders podcast, and get some great perks along the way, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. We really, really appreciate it. Huge thank you to Gigi Fernandez. You can check her out at ggfernandeztennis.com. Thank you to Mariel Klunder Hollins for helping us set up the interview with Gigi. I want to thank my cousin Jay Shapiro for helping us with accommodations. And if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And tell your friends. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from you, so if you want to have a topic explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreview Tennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We will be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.